morning. Take your Bible, turn with me this morning. John chapter 6 and verse number 22. Have you ever wondered, what does Jesus care about? What really important to him? I think one of the mistakes made by churches in our day is to equate numbers with success. To read some reports, you're led to believe that the only thing that matters is the size of the worship congregation. Today's text reveals to us that Jesus cares about people's motives. He was not then, and he is not now, interested in large crowds that come for the wrong reason. So how does that play out in modern evangelical America? Many churches have done away with their Sunday evening service, and many churches no longer have a midweek service either. But morning worship service attendance is still doing quite well, especially in the megachurches, and the people like it. Things are exciting. They have lively music. They have neat sound equipment. They have smoke and lights, and they have neat-oriented preaching. Attendance is up, excitement is up, but is godliness on the increase? Do we see a deepening commitment? Or do we just see bigger and bigger audiences who come to watch the performance, but they don't really get serious about real Christian commitment? This growing problem has called, caused Jack Hayford to say of this growing class of church people, They come for the show, but they refuse to grow. One pastor of a fast-growing church remarked, rather tongue-in-cheek, our people are converted in every way except their mindset, their lifestyle, and their values. Exactly. If the surveys of church statistician George Barna are correct, even after we supposedly have gotten people saved... Many still act and think about the same way they did before they got saved. Just because they came for the show doesn't mean they're willing to grow or to be faithful to their spouse or to tithe or to be faithful to their church. Like the people who fill some of the mega churches, like Joel Osteen's church in Houston, they're willing to listen as long as what they hear is positive and helpful And they don't have to hear anything convicting like talk about sin or repentance or any of that negative and painful stuff. They are shallow bunch, but they're a happy bunch. They even like church, well, at least one hour on Sunday morning. And they'll sign up for classes if they're like classes in CPR or how to make your child mind without losing yours. But when it comes to being committed follower of Jesus, many of them say, no thanks, we'll pass. One has to wonder, with all the worldly excitement drawing crowds to churches today, how many would come if Christianity were suddenly made illegal and they faced arrest. It is always when the worldly veneer is stripped away, and especially when there is a price to be paid that we discover who are the true followers 
of Christ. Now let me set the stage for the scene for today's text. As Brother Bobby kind of set the stage for you, after Jesus had fed the multitude with just five loaves and three fish, the disciples boarded a boat, and in obedience to the Lord's command, they started across the Sea of Galilee. They're a little bit over halfway across when they encounter a terrible storm. Then, according to verses 15 through 21, Jesus came to them in the storm, walking on the water. And when he entered the boat, they arrived immediately at their destination. So would you pick up your reading with me in verse number 22? On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no boat there except the one which the disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not with them, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. The crowd had noticed that when the disciples left without Jesus, that he was still on the shore. But when they looked for Jesus in the morning, they could not find him. They knew that he had not gone with the disciples in the one boat that was available at the time, and they were puzzled as to what could have happened to him. So the crowd got in the boats, they crossed the sea, they followed the disciples, and there they found Jesus in Capernaum. Three things this morning about seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons. First of all, they sought Jesus with the wrong motive. Verse 25 says, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when... Did you come here? I think it's interesting to note that when the crowd catches up with Jesus, they ask, when did you arrive here? Now, since John has already indicated that the people were puzzled about what boat Jesus could have used to get there, and one would have supposed that their question would have been, how did you get here? And if they had thought, about that for a little while, and if they had sought to understand that, how he arrived at that location, then they would have understood more about Jesus. But instead of telling them when he arrived, he told them why they had come. Verse 26 says, And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Now, Jesus' response is a solemn one. It's indicated by the use of the words truly, truly, or as the King James uses, verily, verily, sometimes translated most assuredly. Indicating this is something very important and they need to pay attention. What we find here is that he could read their hearts and he knew why they had come. He, they knew, he knew why they had followed him. 
They followed him because they had been fed once and they wanted to be fed again. They did not consider the purpose of the miracle. They only wanted to see a continuation of that miracle. They followed Jesus because they wanted something from him. There are still people who are only interested in the loaves and the fishes. Christian missionaries in 19th century India used to describe those who came to the mission station simply for the food as rice Christians. So long as you gave them free rice, they'd be back. This became a derogatory term for those who accepted Christianity out of hunger rather than out of genuine conviction. Truth is, if we are not careful, we too can be guilty of wanting what Christ gives rather than Christ himself. This speaks to the popular heresy in our day that it is God's will for every Christian to be financially prosperous. The false teachers who promote this sham teaching are preying on people's greed. Sadly, this teaching is not confined to America, but now in rampant, even in many poor countries as well. It deceives people into thinking that their real need is more money, when in fact their greatest need is the eternal life that Jesus offers. They sought Jesus for the wrong motive. And secondly, they sought Jesus to satisfy the wrong needs. Verse 27 says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. They said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. First of all, Jesus talks to them about the need to seek to satisfy a spiritual need. The New American Standard Version translates verse 27 this way. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which, is, which endures to eternal life. Jesus says that they should not keep working for that which is at best temporary. The verb work here has continuing force, something that they are continuing over and over and over and over to do. There are, of course, two kinds of hunger. There is physical hunger which physical food can at least temporarily satisfy. And then there is spiritual hunger, which food can never satisfy. Jesus is saying you better think about the life that never ends and get ready for it. Paul is thinking along the same lines when he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.8, for bodily exercise profits a little, But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that is now is of that which is to come. Of course, neither Paul nor Jesus is saying that we should neglect our worldly obligations, but rather 
that things should be put in their right order, that the spiritual is to take priority over the physical, not the other way around. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapter 6, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Notice also, he talks about the salvation is found by faith. The Lord's words must have made an impression that day because it caused his hearers to ask this question. What shall we do in order to work the works of God? You ought to underline that word do in your Bible. The fact that they asked this question indicates that they have some real spiritual interest in serving God. But unfortunately, like so many people through, da- through the centuries, they are firmly convinced that their salvation depends on what they themselves can do. It was their conviction that by living a good life, it was possible to earn the favor of God and to earn a place in heaven. So when the people asked Jesus about doing the works of God, they expected him to lay down a list, a list of things that they must do in order to please God. But this is not what Jesus says at all. When Jesus replies, I want you to notice in verse 29, he says, he he speaks of the work of God. And notice it is singular, not plural. In his conversation with Martha, the sister of Lazarus, Jesus said to her in Luke chapter 10 and verse 42, but one thing is needed. And that one thing that he speaks of here is the need to believe in him who God had sent. In other words, the only work that God desires from us is faith. Can a man or woman who has been a sinner all their life be simply saved by believing in Jesus? The world says that's too simple. Something must be necessary. Something must be done. And yes, something must be done. It's already been done. Jesus did it long ago when he paid for my sin and your sin on the cross of Calvary. Once for all time, paying the penalty of sin. The only thing left to do except what he has done. Believe in Christ. Salvation is a gift. It is by faith that we accept that gift. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, the apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, John chapter 3 is a chapter about faith and being saved by faith. In verse 15 of that chapter, we read, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 18 says, And he who believes in him is not condemned. 
In verse 36, he says, and he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Do those words of Jesus mean that then there are no, there is no place for works in the Christian life? Well, of course not. Jesus says that we are saved by faith alone, but that faith goes on to do good works. We're reminded of that truth as we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. But the next verse of that same passage, verse number 10, says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In the book of James, James chapter 2 and verse 17, we find thus faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, good works validate our profession of faith. Without a changed life, our profession of faith is really questionable. And then third, they were looking for the wrong signs. Verse number 30 says, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They imply, if only Jesus would produce a satisfactory sign, they would believe. It's really easy even today to put our own human expectations forward as to how God must act. The Jews had been taught that the manna given by God to the Children of Israel in the wilderness was the bread of God. They had further been taught by the rabbis that the coming Messiah would again give them manna. Therefore, the people were challenging Jesus to produce the bread of life, the manna. If you will produce the manna, we will believe that you are the Messiah. They tried to put Jesus in his place in verse 31 by saying, Moses fed manna to the children of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. You only produced bread one time. Their reasoning is that the feeding of a few thousand one time from a few loaves and fish was nothing when compared to the feeding of the hundreds of thousands of people in the wilderness on a daily basis for 40 years. Jesus, in his reply, pointed out the fallacies of their belief by pointing to three critical errors. Again, he begins with the emphatic, truly, truly, or verily, verily, indicating that what follows is very important. The first thing was they dealt with a misunderstanding of the past by pointing out it was not Moses who provided the manna. It was God who provided the manna. 
Secondly, then Jesus shifted to the present and he told them that God did not just give his gifts in the past, but that he gives them now. Jesus is teaching that God is a present reality. God is even now giving them his son as a provision for their need for spiritual bread to meet their daily spiritual need. And perhaps most important of all is that Jesus told them that manna was not really the bread of God. It was only the symbol of the bread of God. The bread of God was a person, and that person is the person who gives life to the world, and that person was Jesus. Today, men perpetuate the era of demanding more proof. There are liter- we are surrounded by thousands of evidences of the creative hand of God, and yet people still say, what proof do we have that there is a God? As the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers at Rome, the problem has never really been a lack of evidence. He wrote in Romans chapter 1 and verses 19 through 22, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. The problem has never been a lack of evidence, but a refusal to accept the evidence and believe Next week, we'll take an in-depth look at Jesus, the bread of life. But I'd like to ask you in closing, are we still seeking Jesus in the wrong way? They sought him with the wrong motive. They sought him to satisfy the wrong needs, and they were looking for the wrong signs. Let's pray. Father,